If we engage the rose of the heart so that we are a veritable bud flowering into God, every moment of life is pulsating with the moisture in the atmosphere, the air around us, which becomes our living breath, the cells of our body on the firmament of the earth, nourished by its fruits, and the fire at its heart, and in the sun and in the stars, through which we express the embodied warmth that it is to be a human being. In that life, every moment is an expression of the miraculous, <clears throat> containing everything that has ever existed, everything that ever will exist, in our heart of hearts, including ourselves as that, as that rose, that blossoming flower of God, of the universe. And we strive to acquire a, a deep sense of meaning. <clears throat> what does this mean? And all too often we express the survivor has meaning. The intelligent one has meaning. The one who is wealthy has meaning. The one who is the fairest of them all, the prettiest, according to whatever cultural concepts we hold <clears throat> at the time and in a certain part of the world. That one has meaning. <clears throat> and then we tend to judge, I don't have that meaning, or I have a lot of that meaning and you don't. Or you and I, we have that meaning and that, that meaning and that other person doesn't. And we hold an argument with God about everything. And we cause a popular word in psychology these days, a boundary. I have a boundary and you can't come in until you're important to me. Unless I decide with my lower will that you have any meaning at all whatsoever. <clears throat> and we then justify a loneliness, a sort of psychopathic existential crisis of the human heart. Because we can't find the rose, we, we've become the thorn. And we keep awaiting an answer from our idea of the divine or our existential philosophical idea of the universe or something on a material level of importance something that we think has monetary value or the value of youth or beauty or power or finances. And then we compare it to someone else. You don't. Oh, you do. He does. She doesn't. They do. No, they don't. I do. No, I don't. And <clears throat> we are in this electromagnetic argument with the cosmos trying to play God or trying to control through the heart chakra and what it doesn't yet embody, we are trying to control the next moment from the past moment. We are trying to control the future into eternity, at least until the last moment of our life, from what we think we can glean from the past 
And where we hold money, power, beauty, importance, prestige, status, class, lack of. And we can't find an answer because the answer doesn't exist without the miraculous, period. I, I state this unequivocally as a contemplative mystic. The mystery is so innocent and pure. A phrase I have used often, I don't speak Sanskrit, I've taken some graduate courses in Sanskrit, but I am very rusty and I never was a great linguist in those levels. My study was in other domains of literature and devotion and practice of world religions. But I do have a colleague, Fred Smith, who is a brilliant linguist. He's fluent in Sanskrit and very devotional and in the mornings will read and chant in Sanskrit to keep a very supple flow, not only in his mind, but in the goodness of his heart, whether with his wife, his late mother, he grew up in Santa Fe, his brother, who's a renowned uh, photographer and gallery curator. Who is Fred? Well, he's pure. He's good. He lives in the spaces where the miraculous dwells. I've known maybe 10 people in my life who live from such a place. My old great friend, Macarius Mandragan from the Pribilof Islands in Alaska, an Aleut leader, incredible human being. And so when one engages such a being, there is a state of meeting what one doesn't know yet. What Fred doesn't know yet, and I don't know yet. What Fred doesn't know and his brother doesn't know yet. What Macarius doesn't know yet and Fred doesn't know yet, or Macarius's wife and Fred's wife. And so in that meeting place is the miraculous. And the miraculous is not only being or existing. The miraculous is doing or acting or is alive or is real. So the phrase Purnamidam Purnamidayam from the Sanskrit or the Pali predating the Sanskrit, Purnamidam Purnamidayam. From that which is perfect, that which is of the pure, springs miraculously that which is the pure. It doesn't try to say in that mantra or phrase in the Vedas, which are our oldest written word on the earth, it doesn't try to say, this is how it comes forward. The phrase is that it springs, it arises, it comes forward. It is and enacts of purity into purity, from purity into itself. And when one is praying that or chanting that or reading it and translating it as a scholar, one is a child then, a student of the wonder or the awe of opening the bud at the center of the heart, of the spiritual heart, to the miraculous, oh, Purnamadam, Purnamadayam, oh, heaven on earth. And then what happens is 
One is training through one's consciousness and ears and voice and posture to listen and look and taste and touch toward the state of mystery that is holy. And then one becomes a seed of that rose bush, a seed of the holiness perfuming eternity. Okay, these are the winds of God the mystic rides upon in study, in prayer, in practice. Why would you do anything else? So when one embodies this principle, life brings forward something gorgeous and something tragic, something ordinary and mundane, and something splendid. <clears throat> it actually does this to almost everyone, almost every day. The question is where we put our second attention that I spoke of last month, our internal attention, our cosmic attention, our soul's attention, and then our mind, and then our character, our personality, our aura and chakras, metaphysically, and then our emotions, and then our body. So if one is paying attention to the Holy of Holies, one is always innocent, open as this rosebud of the Lord, facing that direction into eternity behind us in the present moment, the next breath and before us. And we are listening and looking and tasting and touching and smelling for that fragrance of God. Oh, springtime, this blossom Oh, the smell of the leaves, or <clears throat> early autumn in the Finger Lakes where I grew up, with the windows rolled down in the car. Early autumn, oh, the grapes are ripe. The, the tangible scent of the grapes. And the mood of the farmers and of the songbirds. And then what happens is a, a quality of being still. <clears throat> There's a beautiful phrase, be still and know that I am God. And when one is still before that great presence of that, that which is God, it is written, be still and know that I am God. If we're a student of that. Oh, I'm studying that which is God. I am still and beholding that. I'm, I'm facing that direction. <clears throat> That direction, that quality, that ineffable um, state or beingness that is God, or for a secular humanist that is the cosmos, it expresses itself to, to us, to oneself, as if the entire garden and the rosebud of your heart were the same, and yet you, again, like the example I've used before, is you're just a dewdrop of the ocean. You're one rose petal of the fragrance and coloration of hues and texture 
of every blossom that's ever bloomed anywhere and ever will. Yet you are in complete relationship to it all the time. You always were. You always will be. And your place in that heart of hearts is to tend that in every single living being and in your respectful life within the material plane. And then the miraculous teaches you how to be saintly, how to be sagely wise, to be a student of wisdom, of humility, of respect, of reciprocity. We can name virtue after virtue. It's very simple. One has to simply be willing to be of that. So what occurs in most of our lives is we place our second attention, our inner attention, out, and we want something important, like a child saying, I want dessert, please. I want one more story before bedtime. I don't want to do my chores. We, we have what I call the tantrum, rather than the willingness. And usually what God does, what the universe does, the absolute, that, source, it expresses disciplining us, drawing us out over time into the next breath so that patience arises from within us. Tolerance. We are willing to be present beside a sibling or a neighbor or a classmate who is tardy, who's lingering behind, not quite keeping up. Or we ourselves are aware, I want the attention, so I'm going to loiter behind, linger behind, not quite show up, not yet. And then we try to push and pull, will others linger with me? <clears throat> will others loiter with me over here, out of sequence, not quite in the space and time of our purpose, but where I'm important, or where I wish I were as smart as that boy or as beautiful as that one or as prosperous as that one or as humorous or brilliant or athletic and we we project out or we grasp at the universe just for one moment couldn't it just be about me or look at me it's never enough about me it's really hard because it's just never enough or I want more, 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 me, 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 more, more, more. We feel it's boring to be receiving grace. Where in actuality, every moment of allowing the in-breath and then the quiet pause that is life embodied and then the out-breath, every moment given the second attention toward God toward the universe, we realize oh, I'm receiving grace. And then we are to be willing to be of that grace and then to embody the grace. And what happens with the miraculous is it is always opening us like a blooming flower to 
an experience of heaven, an experience beyond our understanding, yet including our understanding. And we tend to feel, but I'll lose importance. I, I don't know where this is going. I can't feel myself anymore. It's not just about me. I don't want to give this up. I Wait a minute, we go into the tantrum. And then the divine patiently tries to teach us to linger more deeply with the grace and more deeply and more deeply. So if one can direct one's second attention in the direction of grace or the direction of heaven, you'll realize every, every breath I can just come back to it when I lose it. Every breath I can just come back to the direction of grace, the direction of heaven. Now where were we, God? Now, where were we, cosmos? And then we have a sustained mood of quiet inner realization. Oh, I am receptive to grace. Oh, it is opening me up beyond harm. And we tend to have the tantrum, I don't, I don't want that yet. I might want to be important. I want, might want to not be so nice to that person or that one. I can choose, and the divine is with us, but there is a, there's an external pressure that our internal willingness to mature has to meet so that the blossom begins to grow willingly in your center of your spiritual heart, your upper levels of consciousness, down in the in the gut, around the navel, the abdomen, developing that soft belly quality Stephen Levine would talk about. So that the soul is willing through the heart being willing and the lower will allowing the body down into everything it is to be a human being to be willing. And then there is a quality like wine or like perfume. Oh, I'm, I'm moving as a human being who is a servant of grace. And then there will be a flickering moment of something miraculous where you'll realize, I understand an aspect of that. Not all of it, but an aspect of it. And then the first attention, the part of you that is in the body, that can grasp physicality and feeling in emotion and sentiment. And the character of you, the, pers the personality of you, and the mind of you goes, oh, why didn't I learn that when I was two or five or 70 or 40 or 18? Why doesn't everyone do this? And then there is that quietude in which you and God, you and the universe, can simply embody this moment after moment after moment. And all that is within you of your past that is unreconciled arises over time to be reconciled into the miraculous. Every breath you will ever take can be through your free will, reconciled into realization of this. Of course, Father, Mother in heaven, God taught Yahweh.
we move in a direction then of allowing this mysterious principle to kind of dissolve us. And yet we are more and more just fully here. And then more and more fully enacting that blossoming as the expression of our life. We, the human being, become like a living rose. And other people can't feel you be important. You walk by and they think, well, who's that? It's nobody. Because there's less and less left of the opacity, the density, the opaque layers of your aura. There's less and less of the pictures stored like old slides or photographs of your memories. Remember this scar? Remember this that happened to me? Can't everybody see how horrible this was that happened to my ancestors? What about this that happened to my ancestors? And look at these things. They were terrible that happened to me. And look what my ancestors did that was terrible. Wait till I show you what I'm going to do to your kids because I have so much power. Wait till I acquire enough money to really do a number on you. All those things start melting away. And we realize, well, I don't have any way to show anybody who I am. I go, that's correct. Because the aura starts becoming transcendent. It starts dissolving into a clear, transparent, or very translucent state, which we see in very few people. And more and more of the density of oneself just melts away until what is left in a fully enlightened being would be just the incarnation as a miraculous embodiment, breathing. A living prayer. Second attention of heaven. Paying attention to what heaven is doing. The heart of hearts being infinitely tenderly fulfilled by the most modest circumstances. The first attention being present with the day at hand, tending the chores of the day, tending the needs of the living body one is within, respectfully, naturally, according to one's culture and the teaching one has been given by one's parents and elders and family members and kin, kith and kin and neighbors and teachers and mentors, according to the blessing and challenges that are the framework around oneself, the rosebud. Right? One rosebud grows beautifully in a refugee camp, another has a very hard time. One grows beautifully in a mansion, another has a very hard time. One grows beautifully on a small farm, and another has a very hard time. But the heart of hearts in each of us is placed within a framework through which one can open petal after flower petal after flower petal. So I'll use a simple story. It's actually a 
very personal story, but it happened to me this past month. I traveled to see some people very, very close to me, and I had to be taken in a wheelchair to the hospital. I'm not really sick. It's more my body is just um, aging and difficulty. So when I, if I go to an airport, which I don't do very often these days, I have someone come in and wheel me in a wheelchair through security and out to the gate and uh, up to the door sometimes, and then I can walk into the plane and I can walk off and get in the wheelchair. And so <clears throat> I didn't have anyone traveling with me, so I went on a nonstop flight and Blaine took me to the airport and then uh, friends came in and picked me up uh, at the wheelchair just outside the the um, terminal. So I was on a nonstop flight, wheelchair to wheelchair, and I was coming home. This is on Easter Sunday. So we're at a holiday season in our Western faith traditions, the Abrahamic faiths of springtime all around the world and the lower southern hemisphere would be in autumn but we have come into spring equinox in march and then in april this year into passover in judaism the easter holy week in christianity the orthodox easter the following week in the orthodox traditions and ramadan in the muslim tradition so they're all happening at the same time over a period of several weeks and into slightly over a month so in the very center of this, I, I was present with some people I love beyond any words I can express. And so I was taken and a woman came with a wheelchair to get me. And the friends who, who had taken me were aware that she seemed to be a person into whose capable hands I could be placed as I sat in the wheelchair. And we said goodbye. And I turned and she took me into the terminal. This is on Easter Sunday afternoon, late morning actually. And so as we came into the terminal area and uh, checked in my bag uh, and, and had this wonderful exchanges with various people, a transgender person came and took care of my suitcase and uh, came all the way to the curb to get it. Some of my elder friends didn't have to carry it, nor did I. They were just wonderful. They wished me a happy Easter as they say goodbye. Uh, the, the person handling the suitcase, and then I went into the terminal, the, the woman wheeled me into the terminal. And we came through the TSA area and she removed my shoes and took my cane and then uh, would just turn and talk to me and then help assist things and go on. Everyone there was helpful. They handed me another cane to walk through the machines, and I came out on the other side, and the woman came to greet me and meet me. And then she lifted her head and said, it's so hard sometimes. She was a Muslim woman. She had a hijab on her head. She had very chic blue jeans and a beautiful blouse and a, a deep crimson-colored hijab wrapped closely around her head, just around her top of her head and under her chin. And she had tears in her eyes, and she said, sometimes people can just be so mean. Someone had just been very mean to her. She said, sometimes people can be so mean. I'm just, I'm sorry. I said, it's all okay. And she said, it's just really hard, you know. It's Ramadan now, which for her was a sacred time of the year. She was fasting. She was going to pray in the evenings. And she said, 
Sometimes people are so mean, I'll come up to get the person in the wheelchair and they will have taken out a dollar bill or whatever they were going to give her as a tip for wheeling them in the wheelchair. And when they see it's me who's assigned to push them, they put the money away and won't talk to me or even look at me. But I push them and I pray for them anyway because that is what a good person should do. So we we began talking back and forth about this. She didn't say what the person had done who was mean. She just said, well, tonight, you know, when I'm finished with work, I'm off early enough that I'll be going, you know, I'll be going to the mosque to pray. And so as we went forward toward the gate where she was to leave me, I asked her, do you have a locker where you can place things at work? And she said, I do. And I said, I have something in my bag I'd like you to have. It's a new shawl. I've worn it while I was staying with my friends. And they're Sufi. So they were praying in the evening during this. They, they, they do all throughout the year, but especially at this Ramadan time. They were praying in the evening, just the three of us. And even though I've worn it these times in prayer beside them, I would like you to have it. It's so beautiful so that you can remember that your faith is respected by someone whom you took care of. And for me, it was that Easter afternoon. And she left me at the gate in the wheelchair. And then I sat in that wheelchair for six hours until the third pilot finally showed up. They, the pilot didn't show up, and then the next pilot who was assigned didn't come, and then the next pilot who was assigned was this change at the last minute as he came toward the gate to another bigger flight somewhere else. They wouldn't say where. So I could see from my wheelchair the jet out through the window. I was within 10 feet of the gate agents who were unbelievably kind to every person who came by. They had a constant line, unending line, for the whole six hours I sat there. And it was a very contemplative way to spend an Easter afternoon. And that place within my heart was like a blooming flower without disturbance. And a young woman took care of me. I asked her what her name was, and she said, she told me her name. Her name was a woman, after a woman, who had been a slave, who was given to Muhammad as a gift, peace and blessing be upon him, and became one of his wives. And she, she loved having that name. She said, I'm not a slave, but it's a beautiful, but I, it, she felt it was given to her to represent things in her life which might be hard so that she could find freedom and goodness in her life. She came from the Sudan. She had come into very, very difficult circumstances as a tiny child. And being beside her that Easter afternoon, everything that my ancestors came to America to aspire toward in their second attention, their prayer, their longing, their aspiration, their hard work, 
their soul's attention to God and virtue everywhere and their courageous practice to work in education and service and farming and business and all the different enterprises my relatives have been engaged in over the last several hundred years here in America and in Europe. Those qualities were vibrant in her. She said, I, I harbor no hatred toward anyone. It's just hard for me sometimes. It hurts my heart so much I can feel it. And then I still have to push them in the wheelchair. But I do, I don't mind. It's my work. I'll never forget her in the red hijab, crimson colored like the deepest color of dawn or sunset that God brings forward on this earth every day like certain colors of roses and peonies and other flowers. So the quality of this mercy, which moves through you and me every day, when we allow that to have the attitude that the miraculous is normal, that the way in which we might meet another human being could always be filled with grace and love for God in that other being and in oneself. The person might say no, like the people who pull the money away from her won't look at her. I'll take the woman to the bathroom and help her stand up and walk her all the way in and then close the door and then come back for her and she still will turn away from me. She'll just hate me, but I don't hate her, this young woman said. She's working as best she can in prayer and practice, and may we all. And then this quality that's a kind of jewel, like a flower we didn't know existed, occurs. I remember when I packed the shawl that I took, I thought, well, this is this new shawl that I love. It's warm. It could be cool in the evenings where I'm going. And I think I'll take this one. The colors are deeper than the clothes I'm taking. But for some reason, I should take this shawl. And then when I first was aware I should give this shawl to her, I had the flicker of being aware I've loved this shawl. I've saved it for over a year before I've really used it. Well, it's hers, not mine. See, I had that moment of, I've, I was going to love wearing this shawl. It would have been sentimental to me to wear it for years, having taken it on a journey with people I love so deeply. And yet, it would have meant nothing, because I would have not been present with the fibers of the shawl being woven of wool and silk. The places where the silkworms lived in the plants spinning their thread. The places where the sheep grew and grazed and were tended by human beings and shepherding dogs. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been in relationship to the miraculous in all of those creatures from the silkworms and the mulberry leaves and the grasses and the ewes and the rams and the dogs and the men and the women who would I have been then? I would have forgotten to be in the garden of the roses of God. 
And I just have such deep prayer and practice because for whatever reason, God has formed me with a certain vigilance so we might speak in this way today. And I've been blessed with countless mentors who've shown me by their own prayer and practice a willingness. It might be late in the evening and a Native American would tell me a story and stay up later than their normal bedtime. No, you're here visiting. I want to talk to you for another hour. I would say, okay. And they would say, I'm not too tired. It's all right. If I felt they were too tired, I would have respectfully asked, why don't we do this in the morning so I don't harm your rest? There's a, there's a way to be with this in relationship. And then we are tending the roses of God everywhere. And then that shawl is part of the portion, this Ramadan, this Orthodox Easter, that Easter Sunday, this year of Passover. And the quality of our second attention is beyond war. We are studying that which formed our languages, our faith traditions throughout the world. The translation points for the words of the Torah or the Old Testament or the new, the words of Jesus or the words of Lao Tzu or Confucius. And then what did he say? And Fred Smith might look at the Chinese, which he studied also for 30 years now or 40 years. He'd say, I only know this many characters. To be really fluent as a scholar, I must know this many. And he would just diligently go on. So whether Fred would be working with Sanskrit or Chinese, he would know this is what the word really means. Heaven and earth. One flower petal. When your heart is in the study of that part of the garden, and mine is. There is a peace on earth that is always miraculous everywhere. Let us embody this every breath in prayer and practice. <laughs>